happy Saturday and thank you for joining us. This is Adelita Grijalva and we're having a plática with Adelita. So these pláticas or chats started during the campaign when we were trying to engage voters in what issues were concerning them. And now since being elected into office, we're going to continue the conversations talking about different issues that are coming up in our community. And today I thought it was incredibly timely for us to talk about issues facing Pima County and how we can work together to solve them. And where we are today is remembering um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy, his, specifically his legacy of nonviolence and fighting for justice and racial equality. So important, I think, um, and such a, a timely conversation to have right now, considering that we are um, in the position that we're in in our nation and in our community. Martin Luther King Jr. dedicated his life to the nonviolent struggle for equality in the United States. The third Monday in January marks Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a federal holiday. It honors King's legacy and challenges citizens to engage in volunteer service in their community. And I'm going to ask each of you um, it, what is going on in our community. I know that we just had a screen up of a virtual conversation that people are asking our community members to join and I'm definitely going to do that but also talk a little bit about what else we're going to do as far as service. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. helped organize the Montgomery bus boycott, a year-long campaign touched off with um, seamstress Rosa Parks and was arrested. she was arrested after refusing to give up her seat in the bus to a white passenger after the Supreme Court overturned Alabama's bus segregation laws in 1956, King co-founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and promoted nonviolent action for civil rights throughout the South. But what does this legacy mean for us today? And so ha has this dream been achieved? And I, I would say no, but we are going to continue to work towards that. But um, joining me today, in, I'm so very grateful for each of them taking time to join me, is um, Jordan. Hart and um, Tanya Stozer. And so I'm going to have them each introduce themselves and just kind of talk about just a really quick intro and then we'll get into some talking points. So Jordan, do you want to go ahead and start? Um, hi, I'm Jordan Hart. I go to University High School and I'm a sophomore. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about some of the other um, activities you're involved in, in in your community? I know when I was talking to your dad, He's very proud of all the things that you're a part of. And so I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about those. Um, yeah. And then I'm also a part of an organization called Jack and Jill. And I serve on the Far West Regional Team Board as treasurer. And then I am treasurer for the MECYEC. And then I'm also a part of um, an organization called UNIDATS, where we write a grant to a local organization in Tucson. And, okay. and then um, I also do community service and I compete in oratorical. You compete in what? I'm sorry? Oratorical contests. Oh, that's so great. Well, thank you so much for taking. You seem very busy. So I really appreciate you taking some time here. And Tanya, my friend, can you introduce yourself, mm -hmm. please? Yes, my name is Tanya Strozier. I'm the very proud principal of Holiday Fine Arts Magnet School. I am a mom of six and a grandmother of one, Khalees. Um, I just um, also the founding president of uh, Tucson Alliance of Black School Educators. I work on um, other coalitions and community organizations um, about it. And so that's just a little bit about who I am. And you also have quite a presence on social media. I do. You want to advertise that a little bit? You know, well, the first thing I want to do is this is um, a brand that my son started. It's called um, It's Not Us Versus Them. It's Us Versus Racism. And so, oh. I, yeah, I absolutely love this because that's what it's about. It's not about us being against anyone, but it's us collective being against racism. So that's a really uh, strong message that I'm very proud of that he is uh, promoting and so I just am really, I've worked with the Tucson Police Department. I did that over the summer and that was a very eye-opening experience for me. So I really am very committed to equity, but also about being a bridge so that, uh, you know, groups that are really, really separated can find a way to come together. Well, thank you. And please make sure to give the information so we can tell other people how to, how to, how to connect. Um, and then, uh, so what I want to really talk about is what does Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy mean to you? Tanya, do you want to start sure. it off? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it it really, um, it, what it means to me is about uh, taking the opportunities um, that are either, either they're going to be given to you or you take them, about using your voice um, for standing up for what you believe, um, being a, that bridge, being an, an advocate um, for equity, um, really to honor um, every culture. And that's what's really important to me is, and I do that within my school, is to honor every single culture um, and, and really to be honest about our history, to develop um, really a critical consciousness about the things that have happened in our history, but use that uh, to propel us to a better future. And so I think what his legacy does for me is remind me that I have a voice. Not only do I have a voice, but I have a voice that I have an obligation to use, not just for myself, but for my community. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Thank you. I think that what you're saying, it really resonates with me. It's like, I have a voice and I have to speak up for those who can't. And right. um, I think that that's really, really important right now because with so many things that we're seeing nationally, just some really bigoted, racist, horrible comments. It's We need everyone that is offended by those things to say something. Like the time for us to sit around and sort of say, you know, I'm just gonna let that one go. That time is, is, we can't do that anymore. Jordan, do you want to talk a little bit about what um, MLK's legacy means to you? Um, yeah, his legacy to me means basically a lot of what Ms. Tanya said about speaking up and advocating for social justice. And it's really an inspiration for me to do those things and then also focus on a lot of stuff like philanthropy. And it also represents a unification for people, for all people. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's so much that, you know, we as people of color have to really unite together and push back against some of these things and educate people on why it's some of the systemic problems that we have, that when we talk about systemic racism, what that means. And I'm so um, grateful to you, Tanya, for being a part of working with the Tucson Police Department, because I think that that's where we really start to unpeel some of the like the profiling that happens when people say, well, no, I, I, I don't profile. Well, when's the last time you had any kind of cultural consciousness sort of training? Because sometimes mm -hmm. these systems are sort of set up that way to kind of keep us in this um without even with, without even acknowledging that this is a problem. It's like, well, that's just the way it is. It's a culture of law enforcement. Well, where did that come from? <laughs> and talk more about the history of, mm -hmm. of how these things happen. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I really appreciate that came out of that work that I did with them in the summer is that, you know, we, we're not going to, actually I was able to do a presentation to um, the members of that, of that team um, that I was working with. And so I think that just being given that platform was pretty powerful. But one of the things that was a huge takeaway for me is one, some of the things that we assume about people, um, some of the things that I didn't want the police to do, I was actually doing to them. Where I didn't want them to dehumanize my people, I found that there were ways that I was dehumanizing them. So it really taught me that there's lessons that we can learn from each other. But then another powerful thing is that I, I really appreciated that we didn't debate we did not debate systemic racism. We assumed systemic racism. Mm -hmm. That's the place where I think that I would love to see all uh, leaders and organizations get to is that we're not gonna debate it. We're gonna assume the presence and then act from that. That's mm -hmm. to me, that's a whole paradigm shift that I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, Jordan, wh what's a reason, you know, you talked about a lot of the organizations that you're a part of at your age. What do you think some of the reasons are that you're so involved and, and what continues to keep you engaged in some of those organizations that you're a part of? Well, as an African-American girl, I experience racism and I see racism and especially everything that's going on with the world and this nation. I that really fuels me to continue with those organizations and speak up for social justice. And so what do you, what are some things that you, cause you said that you've, you've had to experience those things. Where did you experience, um, where's like somewhere that you can bring up so we can start? Cause I think that it's important for us to address how our young people 
are sort of exposed to racism without us even realizing that that's what's happening. I mean, I, you know, now that my children, I have three of them in three different TUSD schools. I just, you know, you hear things, you like walk by an open door and you, you can listen in on lessons now where you couldn't before. And I also like to listen in on the math classes because I need some tutelage in order to help my children with math. <laughs> um, but I hear things. And then I ask my daughter, I'm like, so, so how do you, do you think that that was a racist comment? And she'll look at me. Well, no, I've heard it before. I'm like, but that doesn't make it okay. Do you understand why? And so being able to have these conversations has sort of been one silver lining in this pandemic. But I think that a lot of people don't even realize that they are. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the comment, I'm colorblind. Oh. Like, no, you're not. You just don't, you you don't want to be accused of being a racist. So you say you're colorblind as opposed to acknowledging that you can always learn something. You don't appreciate that that's what you're doing until, you know, someone can call you on it and you have to be open to listening. Um, yeah, Tony, do you want to talk about the organizations and stuff that you're a part of? Sure, but I, I do want to address just the colorblindness in education. Mm -hmm. I think that there was a period in uh, just education where that was the safe thing to say that you were colorblind um, because you didn't want to be accused of, of being a racist. But but honestly, the fact that you could say you're colorblind is your privilege because you get to see you get to decide if you want to see color. I don't get to decide that. I wake up every day and know that I'm a beautiful brown. So mm -hmm. it's when you have the choice then that's a privilege that's actually speaking. But the organization um, that recently started is the Tucson Alliance of Black School Educators. And what it is, is it's an organization that is meant for parents, students, and educators, or anyone that works with children of African-American descent. And our goal is really to be um, advocates, to be change agents, to, um, to help them to be successful, to help them to matriculate to college, but also to make sure that all of their needs are being met in the educational environment. So we, we recognize that parents need advocates. We recognize that parents need to be informed and empowered so that we can build this uh, network of support around our African-American students so that they can be successful. Now, you don't have to be African-American to be a part of the organization, but we do make our primary focus the success of African-American students in Pima County. Well, and I think that that's so critical because if our African-American children and other children of color are successful, everybody will be. That's just kind of the way it works. But I do think that it's important to have um, things that engage young people and teachers that have been trained on how to have engaging, relevant curriculum. And Jordan, I know that you're, you've been in TUSD schools. How do you think that the courses that you've taken or have they um, brought in subjects that are relevant to you as an African-American? Um, well, to be honest, I really feel like they don't a lot. And like with the history, we only touch a brief period on slavery. And even then it's really light. They kind of make it as if it wasn't as harsh. As they want to gloss over it. Yeah. Yeah, they gloss yeah. over it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they also don't teach about important figures in history for African-Americans like Louis Latimer, who created the carbon filament. They just teach about Thomas Jefferson. And I feel like that that damages African-American children because we need to know that we can be successful, that we can be the president instead of being um, what the media presents us as, as only rappers or um, movie stars mm -hmm. and thugs and gangsters. Yeah. That's really powerful because that's our job. We should be doing that. And Tanya, having been in, the, in our system in education for so long, yeah. um, what do you say to Jordan about, you know, what can we do? Well, I, I have an answer. So I'm working on my dissertation right now. And the theory that I'm using is culturally relevant pedagogy. And it does just that, Jordan. One of the parts of that theory says that children should know about more than just their culture, but also teachers. Teachers should be culturally competent. Even if they knew, like, let me just give an example. So 80% of African-Americans attend church. And there's something that we do in our black church called call and response. And so if you knew that about African-American students, you would, you would you could use it as pedagogy. So when so let's say you stand up in a black church and the pastor says, can I get an amen? And then they automatically respond, amen. They know to do that without having been trained. But what if a teacher took that and used it as pedagogy? It would be something that related 
deeply to that black student's identity that would actually help them to learn better. That's mm -hmm. cultural competence. So if, if teachers were to engage with their students knowing something about their culture, it actually would really honestly fit the definition of being student-centered because a lot of what we do tends to be teacher-centered, but if we really wanna reach students where they're at, you have to identify with their culture and use their culture as a bridge. Now that means that a lot of educators would have to change because nearly 80% of teachers in America are white. So that means there's some work that needs to be done, which is why I chose that as part of my dissertation. And so when we do that, that will automatically lead to higher achievement for African-Americans and for uh, Latinx students and for indigenous students because culture is woven into our brains. It isn't something that's separate from us. So I, I am so, I, you know, it, it makes me sad, Jordan, to hear some of the things that you were experiencing, but if people genuinely want to do something about the achievement gap, you know, how African-Americans are uh, significantly behind white students, if we really want to do something about that, we have to tap into culture. You cannot separate culture from who a person is. Yeah. And I'm hoping that with the change in our administration and the changes that are coming in the Department of Education yes. and the fact that we have more people of color in leadership. I mean, you don't you don't appreciate that until you realize that you're the only person of color in the room. And then you're like, well, no wonder you guys aren't thinking about that stuff. Um, just to give you an example, in Pima County, um, I received a report that sort of highlighted the number of people in leadership, whether they were male, female, and what ethnicity, if they've identified, 78 out of 104 are white. Now, the numbers for female and male are nice. That's great. It's like pretty even. But, um, you know, I don't know if you've had somebody in the office that's asking to identify those issues. And that I think is really important. It's something that, you know, when you have young people that are engaged and people that are in leadership positions like you, Tanya, that are identifying those things, it's like you have to acknowledge that there's certain things that are just not okay. And how do we identify them? You have to talk about it and it's uncomfortable and it makes people uncomfortable because we all have to acknowledge that we do have, I know I have privilege, but I also understand that there's things that I've had to experience as a result of being a person of color that is not an experience for other people. Mm -hmm. And so you have to own that. <laughs> and you right. have to own that. And I think right. that that's, that's something that is difficult because you have to grab a mirror and look at yourself and how you're doing things and what you have to do different. Mm -hmm. It's important. Yeah. 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 And so, um, so as far as for Martin Luther King Jr. is le the legacy. I mean, I, what frustrates me is kind of what Jordan said is that we have like the one day we honor Martin Luther King Jr. We have one day that Cesar Chavez is honored and not really, it's not a holiday. So you know, we just kind of have to um, continue to work on things. But you have these days where this is all we talk about for one or two days. And then, you know, you go on with what is very much um, a the traditional history, right. which is really not acknowledging contributions of people of color at all. And so do you know of any activities where our community can get involved um, for Martin Luther King Jr., either the day of service or any organizations that young people can continue to get involved in or, or someone like me who just wants to learn more and be a stronger advocate for people of color and specifically yeah. African-American people? Well, one of the, I guess the first thing that I would say, Adelita, is that, you know, like you, I'm looking for something beyond Black History Month, something behind, beyond Indigenous, you know, recognition or acknowledgement month. We, we have to actually move beyond that because really what that does is send a message of, of awareness and even tolerance um, rather than realizing that I, I'm actually Black all year, all year. <laughs> all year long, I really am. And so um, we, we really wanna get past that because uh, if, if not, it, just, it isn't actually, it isn't actually going to accomplish anything. If, if we don't have this, uh, what they call a socio-political consciousness where you actually acknowledge the economic challenges of this particular group or the educational challenges, if we don't get into those real conversations, then nothing changes. And even the, the very work of equity it is meant to disrupt. So I think it's I think it's great to have 
um, you know, events that honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think that is absolutely awesome. But if people want to see real change, it needs to start with what are you going to do when you wake up tomorrow when it's not MOQ day? What, what are you going to do then? What are you going to do differently? Are you going to open your mouth and use your voice to lead change in your circle of influence? That's where the real, you can be your own uh, volunteer program. You can be your own ceremony. You can, you can decide within yourself how you're going to honor his legacy by what you do every day, not just in January or not just in February. And so I think that, um, you know, I, I can't think of any activities right off the top of my head, but that's the message that's in my heart is, what are you gonna do uh, regarding his legacy tomorrow and the day after that? And be aware that when you step into that place of doing that type of equity work, you are asking for to get in maybe some rough places because the work of, of equity is meant to disrupt. That's the only way you're going to get equity is if you have the mindset of the mindset of uh, disruption. So it's mm -hmm. what are you going to do tomorrow for his honor? That's yeah. What Jordan. Um, I agree. I think we also have to talk about social issues and we have to bring awareness to the racism that we experience in, as minorities. And then as far as um, things that we're doing to honor MRK Day, I'm part of an organization called Jack and Jill that focuses on uplifting African-American children. And so on MRK Day, we are donating um, hair care products and soaps to IMU 360. And do you fund you fundraise and do in order to to get those supplies, or you ask for donations? Um, well, we we give money ourselves to get the supplies, and then we give them to other nonprofits. That's great. That really is, and I think that that's it's that whole culture of giving and looking out for other people. It's really so important. Um, and I'm I'm optimistic that in this position with supervisor, when we look at what kind of training opportunities and educational opportunities are we giving people that have like there's this cycle of poverty and the only way really to break it is education and so how are we helping people get to that next level so their families are no longer in poverty we have such a high number of people that are in poverty and i when you're talking about the kind of educational opportunities and relevance that you haven't had in your curriculum, it makes a lot of sense that a lot of the children that end up dropping out early are children of color because it's like, well, I don't see myself in anything here. And that's right. what I think is so critical and important. Yep, I would agree with you. I think that there are a lot of places where we can enact change. And I know that the pandemic has been a really challenging time for so many of us, but simultaneously, there's a tremendous opportunity for us to rewrite education. There's literally an opportunity for us to do education very differently than what we've done. I mean, if you think about, or if you've studied any of the history of our education system, this Western system was really designed for middle-class white families. It was not written for African-American families or Latinx families, it was not written for us. So when you put a test in front of us um, that uses language and things that aren't, aren't meant for us, but then you wonder why we aren't achieving you got to go back to the basics. And so, right. you know, I get, I think that's my hope in all of this is that our state leaders will look at how, how we're going to take advantage of this opportunity to rewrite education, to do it differently and do it right this mm -hmm. time. And to me, that, that means embedding cultural competence and sociopolitical consciousness in our curriculum to look at how we test, how we teach, um, and how we interact with students. So I'm hopeful that we'll take this opportunity and do things differently and not just maintain the status quo because it actually isn't working. No, and it hasn't been for a while. I mean, the whole idea of a classroom looking exactly like it did when I went to school in the 80s, just it's like everything else is evolving. Why aren't we doing something different? And what was really telling to me is when we opened up, um, when we opened up online, and mm -hmm. how many people, not just students, but staff were in the digital divide and didn't have a device, didn't have mm -hmm. access to internet. And it, we make it sound like, okay, well, you don't have access to internet, so you must live on this, you know, 
on the outskirts or unincorporated Pima County or something like that. I lived on Mission in Ajo. This is really very close <laughs> to many schools. And the reason why I didn't have access is because all of the broadband with Cox and Comcast had been expended. And so if for the families that lived right down the way who had one working parent at home and we had this really great deal for practically free internet that we could access and the district would pay for, you have to be able to access the service and, and they couldn't. And so we ended up, you know, then the district had to buy little hotspots and mm -hmm. them all over the place because what else were we gonna do? Um, we had children that for months had no device because of the pandemic, everything was sort of shut down. And I do agree that now we have an opportunity with people telecommuting, with people, students that can't come in during the school year because they have other immunocompromised medical issues and other comprom they're compromised for some reason, or their family is, or they have other obligations that don't allow them to come into school in a traditional kind of setting, or it just doesn't work for them. Sitting there and moving from class to class is super distracting. And for a lot of our students, that just doesn't work. And so how can we? And that was one of the things that I, I posed to our superintendent and our educational system in general. It's like, so how can we do this different so we can actually not lose these kids that we know are very bright? They just have a lot of other stuff going on in their lives that for a lot of us, we can't even appreciate. I mean, we don't really even understand the complications that some young people that are going to your school that are in third grade, the life that they've had to lead and the things they've had to get through to be to that point that they're at going to school every day. It's a, it's just, um, it, it's, um, they're, I'm left speechless when I hear some of those things. It's just, it's just so sad. And, and they're so resilient and so it's like, how do we channel that resiliency into something that is relevant and meaningful? And I am glad that you mentioned uh, resiliency because, um, you know, resiliency is in is in my African American DNA. It's in yep. who I am because it's it, this is how you know since day one we've been taught how to survive. And so one of the things that I've talked to my staff about is I want you to have empathy, but I also want you to empower. I don't want you to enable. Because we one thing that, that we've, we've we've had a lot of challenges in our life, but we also know how to get up when we've been knocked down. So we need to honor the resiliency that's also a part of our DNA and not just the struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jordan, as a young person, what kind of changes do you want to see happen for you for the next, you know, your your two years that you have left in in, in K-12? But then beyond that and for young people like you. That are going to be that are that are attending right now, attending holiday and kinder, like Tanya's youngest. Um, well, in terms of changes in the education system, I would really like to see more representation of my culture, and I would like to see um, more figures of African American history and Hispanic history and other minority groups that are like that are like inventors or maybe important political figures instead of just seeing white people all the time in the books. Right. And then I would also like to see more, like more trainings for teachers about um, prejudice towards minority figures. Um, so that way we can get rid of lots of racism in the classroom and then also get help with the school to prison. And then in terms of the nation, I would really like to see unification between um, two people or two groups of people. And then I would also like to see more African-Americans and other minorities in political positions. Well, I hope that people are paying attention and can write policy or listening to you because you just highlighted so many things that would make it better for so many people. I wanted to introduce Dr. Halt. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Halt. And do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, no, just tell just what you're like, what you're involved in. Um, just a little bio about yourself. A couple of sentences. Um, no pressure. <laughs> uh, uh, my name is uh, Damon Holt and uh, people know me in my mental health and trauma work. They know me um, as a pastor. Uh, they know me as a community leader, president of the IMA 
board chair of the Tucson Urban League. Um, and uh, a lot of people know I'm going to work with uh, TUSD, uh, with uh, MSU and WEAC in Denver, Colorado. So pretty much uh, working with uh, a lot of children that have been experienced a lot of chronic stress and, and a lot of trauma and explain from a scientific way that children are not learning, especially children of color, because they're ignorant or stupid. Um, but there's the science of the brain that when the limbic system is in complete control and kids are in fight or flight or freeze because they're experiencing microaggressions, they're experiencing racial bias, uh, they're experiencing disparities among discipline or arresting kids from the schoolhouse to the jailhouse known as school to prison pipeline, then yeah, yeah, the struggle is real. And I still not have, have added uh, racial trauma as being a, a major issue of what our kids are experiencing. So lack of relationships, lack of attack, attachments uh, impacts the reality of kids. And so I will close in my introduction and say, um, you cannot impact how kids learn until you address how they feel. And that's just how it is. I know our, our structure and education system is a little backwards on rigorous instruction and standardized testing, but you first have to address how kids feel if you're most definitely gonna uh, impact how they learn. We have been talking a lot about how our education system is not working for people of color. And I'm so glad that you're able to join us because you add a whole other nuance of the, the trauma that a lot of young people have been experiencing. Jordan mentioned that she's had to deal with racism and um, not just at local national levels. And so we started this conversation really talking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and legacy of nonviolence. And I just wanted to um, ask you, what does Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy mean to you? Um, I think a lot of time we look at Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King as a, a great prolific leader, as a community leader, organizer, a robust movement of civil rights. Um, but I think also on the spiritual side, you can't help but notice that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was a prophetic leader, which means that he had a prophetic voice. And when he spoke, rather if it made you nervous or rather if it made you intimidated or made you, or made you feel inspired, uh, his voice is very prophetic. And I think mm -hmm. that's so prophetic that we are living some of those struggles that he wanted to dare to, to see some of that in his lifetime. Um, I'm standing on the shoulders of Dr. King. Uh, Tanya Strozier is doing the same thing. Uh, I believe we all are in our type of mm -hmm. level of uh, challenging the powers that be, speaking truth to power, um, and making making sure that his legacy uh, don't fall down uh, on the ground, and that we pick up the, the mantle um, in our levels, right? You know, and our our assignments are different, but I think when it comes to Dr. King's legacy, I think we all have a piece of that pie, and I think that whatever our assignments are, um, and I, I would say he's a he was a he was certainly a Moses, right? He was a Moses uh, that. Uh, not only impacted bondage and, and oppression, but even when Israel got free, they still have to wander in the wilderness and figure some things out in order to go to the promised land. And I think that that's where it's at. We, as people of color, are still trying to find that, that land filled with milk and honey of prosperity and empowerment and equality and equity. And I think that that's where Dr. King uh, wants us to be. Mm -hmm. So... Um I know that you've mentioned a lot of the organizations that you've been a part of, and both yeah. Tanya and Jordan talked a little bit about that. But what is your reason? What is the reason? What drives you to get involved and stay involved in making our community better? Uh, one, I would say, uh, for me, is I, you know I've come from I come from the Midwest. I'm from Flint, Michigan, and so I was used to accustomed to seeing an African American mayor, African American mm -hmm. superintendent of schools. Uh, many people that look like me that sat on city councils um, that took leading roles. And I would say that when I came here, one thing I noticed was a big culture shock is that I didn't see people that look like me that was making decisions. I didn't see enough people that look like me um, that wasn't just having meetings. I wasn't just marching. I wasn't just protesting. But sitting at the seat of the table where decisions are made, where policy um, is implemented, to where it impacts communities that look like being African-American community. Because I understand out of sight, out of mind. So, and, I, and I do believe that sometimes people don't mean 
to leave us out. But the fact of the matter is one is out of sight, out of mind. And if we don't have more people that look like us making decisions at the seat at the table, then who's advocating for us? You know, and, and you know, not the fluffy stuff, right? We're talking about um, one thing you talked about racism and, uh, and in my racial trauma, I teach different manifestations of racism. And I think a lot of times we talk about the interpersonal racism where microaggressions, racial slurs, the N word and all of that, right? But we fail to realize what's harder and what's more toxic to communities of color is the institutional and, and, mm -hmm. and the systemic racism where there's systems that are literally not broken on purpose to marginalize and disenfranchise people for generations. Like far mm -hmm. as the wealth gap, we don't we talk about the achievement gap, but the wealth gap for African Americans, we 10 times behind our, our white counterparts. And we need to most definitely be having some serious conversations about inst uh, institutional racism, not just the interpersonal racism. Mm -hmm. Right. And so talking about some of the things that obviously as a community we need to work on, um, what are the hopes for the recovery of our community? I mean, we're looking at, at a local level where we have some changes in the local system, but really bigger is national. And what was just striking to me when we had uh, these domestic terrorists attack the Capitol and I saw um, many members of Congress on the floor, huddled down, um, hiding. There were, it, 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 it shook me personally because my dad had just walked, finished speaking and was walking off away from the podium on the chamber floor. The next member of Congress was um, Congressman Gosart who started speaking and then we had these people that just like barged in to the Capitol and they had to usher him out and there was a a significant amount of time there that I didn't know where he was. I didn't know who was with him. And I'm just thinking of all of the other families that were all sitting there just like on pins and needles and so many other members of our community that are concerned because what was interesting to me is all of the, the there were so many women of color, members of Congress that were up get, waiting to come down to speak. Cause you know, with the pandemic, everyone is going in shifts and they were all there. And I just thought that, those are the that's the concern that I have that we just have so many people that are just feeling unprotected and that's how so many of us feel all the time and so with this change in leadership at the national level and so many things that we have to work on to repair the last four years but also really to move forward because we can't pretend that everything was rosy four years ago it's just it's just been progressively worse because it's been right in your face so what did what are what does recovery look like for for us for as a nation and as a count as a community? Ooh we, I know um, right. <laughs> I'm like now go. <laughs> oh man, you 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 throw into that. It's complex. Um, well, one of the things I would say is you know going back to racism. You know we get weird and spooky when we start talking about race, right? It's like, you know, it gets, you know, the elephant in the room is like, you know, should I say something? No, should you say something? <laughs> I don't want to look like a racist. You know, I just get all weird. <laughs> and one of the big things I understand is that you can't conquer something that you're willing, not willing to confront first. Mm -hmm. um, and I think racism now, especially institutional racism, need to be raised up to the level of being a, being a, 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 uh, a threat to national security. Now that's deep, but I, I think we need to quit playing with racism. We need to quit playing with it. I think it's a threat to national security and it needs to be on a high level. There needs to be something that perhaps, you know, your dad and others are talking about on a federal level, but what you saw at the Capitol is exactly what I've said. Now it may be said different, but we need to be looking at it. I mean, we went to the point I've heard people say a public health crisis. I, I believe in, in some areas that that's true, especially looking at how racism plays on the mental health and the emotional of, uh, mm -hmm. of Black and Brown Americans. Mm -hmm. But it's a national it's a national security issue. It, it you, when ideology becomes a cult like type of terrorism, to where now uh, people that look like white folks is being attacked. <laughs> It's saying something, right? It's mm -hmm. saying that if you don't do something about this and our strategy is not working, then we're going to go back to the old landmark of things of lynchings. That, that's what they're trying to take it back to. The, the federal flag is not about federal confederacy. 
it's it's the new emblem of racism. It's the emblem of racism. It's been that for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it, it's sad that it took uh, some legislators to get a taste of what black and brown folks have been getting for many years, and and and, and for and and at a level of being covert, because a lot of people say, "Well, it's not that bad." I mean, we we let Barack Obama be the president for for get outdoors, right? We don't have this stuff going on, and we have to realize how ugly violent, how ugly hatred is. Mm -hmm. um, and we know Donald Trump didn't create this, but most definitely he was a bandwagon and an influence that helped you in that fire for yep. sure. He was and, and what struck me the most is is the crowd for for um, Black Lives Matter. We had everybody out there. We had tanks. We had I mean, and then you had these domestic terrorists that look like yeah. someone said that they look like the cast from the Duck Dynasty. Like they just all come in, and that's okay. Apparently, that's totally fine yeah. and not at all scary. I, it, to me, I just didn't. It was so the difference was so striking that it yeah. you can't you can't look at that scenario and say there isn't any racism that there is that there that, that people that people of color storming the Capitol yeah. that way would not have resulted in a very different situation. Tanya, did you want to? Um, yeah. yeah. I know it's a big question. Yeah. You know, you know. Honestly, I was uh, I saw it unfolding on television, and. You know, as a as a as a black woman, I just sat back. You know, I don't want anyone to be harmed. But the things that were going through my mind is, welcome to the terror that I've lived my whole life. Welcome to the party, because I know that there were a lot of of white people that were shocked and dismayed. That well, what happened to the tanks, and why don't they have tanks? And that's a good question. Why aren't they there? Because the the one the way I watched it unfold is that there was such a delay. There was so, it was so very lax. They, the, the issue was that they were not perceived as dangerous, though people of color are assumed to be dangerous. That's, that was the problem. That's why they got to stand around even after the curfew. That's why there was a delay. Um, and we know it had something to do with our leadership, but a delay in why there wasn't, um, you know, the, the National Guard was not there immediately. So I think that that uh, opened some eyes to see, you know, if you compare uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and those protests that happened compared to what happened on to the Capitol, you can see that there's a, a, a tremendous difference. But I think in, in my mind, it is still, what are you gonna do tomorrow? What are you gonna do the next day when everyone isn't in the hype of what happened and the shock that comes with it? My question is, what will you do with your shock and dismay tomorrow? How will you treat people differently what, how will you use your voice in your circle of influence to do something different? And I'm with you, Dr. Holt. We can never address, we can never uh, conquer something that we don't ever want to talk about. And for me, you know, my setting is in the classroom. And so one of the things that we do at my school is we teach kids now about multiple perspectives. That's a, that's a softer way of coming in to address that equity is that there are multiple perspectives to uh, Thanksgiving. There's multiple perspectives to in history. There's multiple perspectives when the NBA was, you know, when they were doing their protests. And that's how we talk to children is we really want them to learn how to look at things from different perspectives. And we work with our staff and it's, it's just an ongoing process, but we have to start somewhere. But can you imagine the momentum that would be built if everyone just owned, owned the fact that I can do something with my voice and with my body in my circle? there would be such an incredible ripple effect. So if you really want to embrace who Dr. King is, start your own ripple effect of how you are going to lead and facilitate change in your circle, in your home, on your job, at your church. I would challenge you, if you are white and watching this, talk to your white pastor about what he's going to do differently. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you. So. Jordan, do you wanna add something? Yeah, well, first, I think it was absolutely ridiculous that they hesitated so much to send the National Guard, but when Black Lives Matter protested, they sent the National Guard right away, and there was tear gas and people were getting shot, and I just think the difference in treatments between African Americans and white people is ridiculous. And then also on what Ms. Tanya said, I would really appreciate if 
we did have those conversations in the classroom if teachers allowed us to talk about um, racial injustice because I know a lot of my friends, they're very ignorant towards these things and don't know because all they know is white privilege. And I would really appreciate it if I could have those conversations with them and actually educate them about racial injustice. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're going to the end of our time. I told you it was gonna go by so fast, but I just wanted to ask each one of you, um, if you wanna talk about something, an event that you're participating in that you'd like to invite community members to, or you know, it's a day of service. And so um, what are some things that you know people can do um, for Martin Luther, to honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy? Anybody? Well, my position is still your whole life. It's it's what you're going to do in your circle, uh, what you're going to do when this broadcast in, who will you talk to? Can you share? I mean, someone just did something as simple as sharing this on your timeline, because I'm sure we all know someone who could really benefit from the conversation that we've had in these 45 minutes. Share, share this information, share this conversation and let it be um, um, a springboard into another conversation in your home about how we inter interact with people. You know, I mean, and, and, and just know that it really starts with dealing with your own implicit biases because we all have them. We all have, we them. All have them, but we all have a responsibility to, to do something about those implicit biases. First of all, uh, discover them and then be responsible for whatever you choose to do with that bias. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Holt? Um, I'm big on you. You really don't know about your destiny until you really aware about your history. And I think that we've been fighting for a long time with school districts around the nation to just get black history. That, Believe it or not, that's still a fight. Um, <laughs> and, you know, keeping the fidelity of black history without distorting it and without watering it down because we don't want to make people feel all weird and, 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 and you know, uh, on the defense. But we have to have these brave conversations and people need to know the history. I think, too, that we have an issue with looking at trajectories of healing is because... We, we, there's a lot of people don't know the history. We still have a lot of uh, black students uh, that don't know enough about black history besides a lot of watered down stuff. So I think looking at curriculum and looking at content and looking at school districts to set policy to make sure that we have uh, a real genuine black history uh, curriculum in school districts is gonna be a good start because it's hard for you to really look at where can we heal when we're still hurting when we don't know about all of our history. So starting with that and then creating a bridge how we can cross over. Absolutely. Jordan? Yeah, mine is basically just what everyone else said, getting to know your history. And um, about getting to know your history, there's a really good book by um, Carter G. Woodson called The Miseducation of the Negro. I really um, recommend that. And then um, also just talking about those conflict, those hard to talk about conversations about racial injustice and um, educating you. Well, thank you. I know we're gonna um, also, there's there's gonna be a virtual sort of, since we can't get together, um, we're gonna have some community leaders speaking at the virtual celebration on Monday the 18th from 10 to 12 and it'll be streaming live. And this will be Dr. Holt, is, <laughs> you'll be there because it's the IMA, the Inter it's Interfaith Ministerial Alliance, is that correct? Community Action Team. And they'll be on the Facebook page. And then there'll be some um, other, there's another page talking about volunteer service and um, the National Day of Service. That'll be at three o'clock and you can sign up. And there's a virtual performances and the fundraiser for Casa Alita. So those are two things that we know about. And if there's anything else, please make sure to add them to the chat. One of the thing, uh, someone that's watching Anne said the education system needs to let teachers and staff go beyond the classroom and teachings of all minority um, and I like to say people of color because minority is assumes that we're the smaller number and we're not. We're the bigger number. There's we more are. of us. Um, <laughs> educational leaders of departments need to not be afraid of staff going through um, going beyond the, to teach and bring culture into our schools. And we that's exactly what we've been talking about. I do think education is a platform for a lot of this where we really need to start here, but then it needs to go beyond. And so I want to thank you all so much for the time that you took. It's a very quick, uh, you know, in the middle of Saturday and I appreciate it. I know all of you are very busy. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thank you for all your service and all that you do and for being three voices um, on the importance of, of legacy education. I mean, there were so many things that I was just writing down notes of basically, I, I agree that racism is a threat to national security and is a threat to our health. Um, and so we, we have to, we have to do more and do better. So I'm thankful for all of you and thankful that I have your cell number so I can always text you if I need yeah. a question, a call or anything. So I really appreciate it. I apologize um, for being late. I feel bad. <laughs> I you know what? what it is, is it's, it's life. Things happen. Yeah. What are you going to do? I'm glad yeah. that you were here. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And so we do have a couple more minutes left and I did want to bring our district five team. They've been waiting in the wings and I'm so very proud of all of these amazing people. Um, so I, we're missing one, probably connection issues is I'm guessing that's our team. We have Keith Bagwell, Elvira Swadestin, and Arlette Morrison, Rios Morrison. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna have them introduce themselves really quickly because we are your D5 team. We are um, the ones that are going to be working for District 5 in Pima County. And I wanted them to have an opportunity so you can connect with a face without a mask because for the foreseeable future, that's how you'll see us if you, we ever see you in person. And so I'll just go ahead and let them introduce themselves and we'll start with Elvira. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Elvira Suarez-Din, and I'm joining Adelita's uh, District 5 team. I'm very excited. Um, so prior to working um, with Adelita on the official side representing District 5, I uh, was her campaign manager in 2020 and also worked on Congressman Rodrihalva's campaign and now Mayor uh, Regina Romero's campaign. So I'm very excited to um, join the official side of things. I know on the campaign side, there's always a lot of work and care about the platform that we're going to put forward and um, always talking to the community about what needs we need to address and what issues we want to work on. So I'm really looking forward to getting to work on the official side to make those dreams actually happen and come into fruition. So um, I'm very excited. Nice to meet everyone and, virtually. <laughs> and thank you. And I think it's going to be so important because Elvira and I worked really closely on when we're talking to people, when you're filling out um, you know, groups are asking like what your platform is, what are you going to do? And so what I think is great is that Elvira coming over to the policy side, we actually get to implement and make sure that we hold, uh, we're held accountable for all of those, those promises that you make, those things that you really want to happen um, to make sure that we don't get lost in the day to day that we lose focus on what are those things that are really important. And I think that that's really critical. And I'm so glad that you both were able to listen in to the conversation because so much of it is why I have been involved in our in the community period and I know why each of you has decided to be a part of changing the narrative and changing policy and I think that that's what we're our focus is going to be and so with that I'm going to introduce our let Rios Morrison well she's I'm going to let she's going to introduce herself okay. Hi everyone, I'm Arlette Rios-Morrison. I um, actually have served in public service uh, through local government for 12 years before joining Adelita's team. Uh, I was a clerk of the board for um, Cochise County for about eight years. So I've kind of been on that side, the administrative side. So I'm so excited to actually work on the supervisor side and help Adelita with all the things that she um, put her campaign foundation on and help those things come to fruition. I'm excited to meet more of uh, the District 5 constituents and find out what's important to them. And hopefully my experience and my background um, will come in handy in our uh, journey for the next four years. So thank you, Adelita, for uh, letting me be part of your team. And um, Elvira and Keith have been so great. And I'm just happy that I am going to get this opportunity. Thank you so much. And so we're going to, I'm just going to have you guys share just one little thing about you that is people don't know, that they might be surprised. A little fun fact. We'll go ahead and start with our list. I'll just go backwards. So a fun fact about me is that I was born in Mexico 
And um, it's not a fun fact, but it's a real fact. And I and I want people to know this because right now with Martin Luther King Day and just things going on nationally, I actually um, went through the process that many families here, a Latin American families face, and my mom was deported in uh, 2019. So it's something that's close to my heart. And I know that we're going to be working on immigration issues and how we can make that process better for families, because even knowing English very well, I can tell you that it was such a scary thing to go through. Mm -hmm. It is. Elvira? Thank you for sharing, Arlette. Um, I think a fact about myself is uh, I couldn't think of anything. Um, I think uh, my biggest passion is really just demystifying public service and um, women in government. And um, so I guess a fun fact is I worked for the first Latina mayor of Tucson and also the first uh, Latina to be elected to serve on the board of mm -hmm. supervisors. So that's a big passion. I also like K-pop, which is always a, <laughs> which is always the thing that I like to tell people so I can get, you know, if anyone doesn't know what to get me on my birthday, just get me something really. <laughs> we, we have to have some tutorials because I'm a little less. Um, so one of the things about me, like, I don't know. Um, I think one of the things about me is that um, I'm a mom of, three and I have my husband Sol works for Pima Community College but he also is part of the D5 family because he worked with Richard so when Richard first was um appointed to the position before he actually ran Sol has known known knew Richard Elias long before I did and so one of the things that's funny is what I hear often is that once you're a D5er you're always a D5er and it resonates with me because really I've continued to know so many people that even when I first was elected in order to run, I, so many people that were like, well, I worked in D5 or I worked with your dad or I were, I mean, it's just like a legacy that continues through this community. So I'm really glad to have such a strong team that are really passionate about issues. We're all working on some different things. And so with the last few minutes, do you each want to talk about some of the things that you're focusing on individually? And then we all are obviously going to be cross-trained on a lot of things and they'll be training me on some things too, I'm sure. So Elvira, do you want to talk about what your focus is in the office? Yeah. So in the office, I've sort of been the communications and digital person for some time. So, um, a lot of things you see online, I have had something to do with. So that's sort of been a big focus. Um, I also am going to be helping with neighborhood association meetings. And like Adelita mentioned, all of us will be taking a piece of that pie, working with different neighborhood associations in the city and in District 5 and helping out with any um, policy related issues or youth outreach is going to be something that I'm going to be working on. So if anyone knows anyone who'd like to volunteer for District 5, um, please let us know. And yeah, just I have a big passion for protecting the Sonoran Conservation Plan and um, immigration is a big policy issue and just general youth engagement and transparency with our offices um, are the sorts of things that I'll be working on. Thank you, Elvira. Arlette? So my main focus is going to be um, creating resources among all the government agencies that uh, come across District 5. I think it's really important that anyone knows who to call to get a permit, um, to talk about roads, to talk about recycling, um, waterways, trash. So I'm going to make sure that we get a good resource page out there. Um, my passion is just public service in general, but I actually like to focus more on our tenured folks because even though they've been around a long time with technology impacting the way that we provide services, it can be a little intimidating. So I like to kind of reach back out to those folks and make sure that they know, hey, we still have people here. They're still going to answer your phones and technology isn't that scary. It is. Thank you so much. And thank you to both of you for on a Saturday jumping on so we could see your lovely faces and um, and for all the work that we're doing now and that we'll continue to do. And so our contact information will be in the link website. And so I encourage you all to um, join our newsletter. And so we can get information out to you as timely as possible. That's all of our info there. And anything you see that is not on Facebook, 
is generated by either Arlette or Elvira because I haven't. <laughs> I, speaking of the digital divide, speaking of being old and not wanting to learn new things, I'm working on it, I promise. But really, I didn't uh, think my, my, my daughter's <laughs> like, you have so much stuff on Insta. I said, I didn't do any of that. That's, yeah. <laughs> I haven't done any of it. So, um, But thank yeah. you all so much for being here. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. I know that Monday is a day of service. And so we're looking for, as a family, something that we can go do. I think we're going to um, go and pick up at um, Joaquin Murieta Park just because we've gone there a couple times to play basketball, stuff like that. And it, it needs a little bit of love. So we're going to do that. But I know um, if anyone has ideas on other service projects or things that they do, please um, share yeah. them so, so other people can get involved. Yeah. And I wanted to say uh, just a special thing for Keith. He really tried joining on. Uh, this is him right here. <laughs> um, this is all of our contact information. So if you would like to reach out to us directly, um, please feel free to email. Um, yeah, Keith is a, a really value, invaluable member of our team. Keith is our senior staff. He was with Richard Elias <laughs> and also with Betty Villegas. He is so knowledgeable on really all things Pima County. So he is our go-to for any of the systems that are going on in Pima County. He's been very involved in COVID response, the Sonoran Conservation Plan. I mean, we're just so very fortunate to have Keith as part of our team. And so we miss him. I'm glad you keep putting his picture up because I'm like, oh yeah, there he is. Um, and so he's also very accessible. And if any of you have worked with Keith in the past, his number hasn't changed. So you can just continue to use that extension. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy um, the rest of your Saturday. And then I encourage everyone to do something in honor of Martin Luther King's legacy. But then as um, Tanya continued to say, it's what we continue to do every day um, to honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye.